Ecolution. What did you have for your breakfast? And I'm not just being nosy. Anytime producers go out recording stuff, they have to set the guest at ease and make sure everything's working okay. And that simple question is so often the go-to. So, what did you have? I went to breakfast club so I had cereal and toast for my breakfast today. Bananas, apples and soup. I had an own so give out a slow release of energy during after school day. I had fruit and cereal. It's good to have a healthy breakfast. It keeps you going for the day. Okay, fruit grown on trees, cereal, which is made of grains grown in fields, sugar that comes from cane or beets, milk that comes from a dairy farm, oats that have been harvested and processed, butter for your toast. Again, we're back to dairy. And bananas, where did they come from? For the record, I had coffee from Colombia and Weedabix. Delicious. That simple question actually tells you a lot. You all like breakfast, so do I. But also, what you've eaten has travelled from all over the world. And how often do you think about where your food comes from? When I eat cornflakes, I don't know where it comes from and different kind of fruits and food. Thanks to my mum, I think about where things come from all the time. Food comes from different countries. England, Ireland, America, all those countries. I don't really think about that until I look at a carton of milk and it says wherever it's from. There's milk from Fairfield Farm and we pass that farm sometimes. It's really creamy milk. So when my mum and dad buy that, I know exactly where it's from. We like to buy things that are in season and they're local. I wonder where um, pineapples come from and oranges because some fruit don't grow here. I ask a lot of questions about where things come from and what they're harming. So I question myself whether I want to have them or not. We all have to eat. Almost 8 billion people live on the planet. That's lots of mouths to feed. We're lucky in Ireland that most of us can walk into a shop and buy the food that we want. But we asked Dr Shane what he thought. He felt not everybody was as mindful of the food they bought as you guys might be. I think we take for granted the food we can buy in our shops. And it's not just in Ireland, it's everywhere really. So nowadays we expect to have raspberries in January and to have avocados whenever we want them. And even if we're completely vegetarian or completely vegan, well, where does all that soy come from? Where does all that quinoa grow? Where do all those fancy vegetables and fruits that we eat, where are they grown and how do they get here? Are they flown here? Are they put on a big ship and shipped over from New Zealand? And do we really need blueberries that much to buy them from South Africa? Now, there's economies elsewhere that we need to support through buying all their food. But is it worth it in terms of our larger battle? That's a really interesting idea about the carbon that's in our food. Because it isn't just the carbon that's used to grow the food. It should also include the carbon that's used to get it here. And that's what we call the embodied carbon. Now, it's a complicated word, but it's really important because we should consider that, think about that with anything we do or use or eat or spend money on. Where has the carbon come from, the environmental impact of that to get it to my place or to my wardrobe or into my car? Ireland is a country known for its rolling green fields and managed farmland. And we sell that green image abroad too. But what happens when our system requires constant growth in the farming industry? According to the CSO, there are 137,000 farms in Ireland, 75% of which generate meat products. Most of this is exported. When the export figures are broken down by sector, dairy is worth a third of total exports, meat and livestock another third, and others contribute to the remaining 
remaining third. That means that farmers, their land and livestock are under a huge amount of pressure to be more intensive. And this can have a huge cost for biodiversity. Although farmland has enormous potential for good, there is a large gap between what needs to be done to generate profit and make a living and what needs to be done for nature. When we were on the bee sanctuary a few weeks back, Claire Louise had some thoughts on that system. Personally, I think the whole system is broken. As I said, I was brought up on a farm and we had large areas that were left. We didn't try and get every little inch of the farm. I think what's, what's happened is it's become so intensified and farmers are under huge pressure, I think. They're not making any money. As I say to people all the time, I say, if you walk into a supermarket and buy a bag of carrots for 39 cents, the farmer's not making money on that. You know, and that the whole system is wrong. They're only making money from getting money from Europe, from their payments. So they're not actually making money on what they're actually doing on the ground. And that's wrong. I don't know if the whole food system, we need to pay a proper price for food. If we do that, then maybe the farmers will get a proper price and then they won't be under so much pressure and they won't need every single inch of the farm. I lived in Dalgany, which is North Wicklow, which is suburbia now. But back then, we had a headmaster from Bray brought a school trip out. And the kids from Bray, they'd never seen sheep or lambs. And that was only Bray back in the early 80s. Even then it was wrong. There was a the big divide back then. I think there is a huge divide. I think people don't understand. I think people walk into a supermarket and they pick up their, their produce and that's it. I think the whole system is wrong. Farmers shouldn't be penalised for having trees. Like you said, if you look at around this field here, this is probably, what, 10, 11 acres in total, including all the trees. We'd get payments possibly for seven acres on this. So there's four acres that isn't included that we're being penalised for. And if a farmer has a tree in the middle of his field, the maps from the sky will look down and they'll take a picture and that tree will be cut out and they won't get paid for that. So if they're under pressure, they're not going to leave the tree there. They're not going to let their ditches encroach. This is called encroachment. See if the way the briars are coming out into the field. That will be cut back because they'd be penalised for that. Farmers are split between two responsibilities. Make their land produce as much food as it possibly can or give nature space, improve biodiversity and work towards more sustainable practices, less focused on the yields and high production. At a time when the planet is gripped by a biodiversity crisis, it seems the second option is obvious. But that seems to be a difficult choice for many. Since the 1960s, the Common Agricultural Policy, or CAP, has been a partnership between agriculture and the society and between Europe and its farmers, and it has reformed many times over the years. It's in a process of change again right now. This time, biodiversity is on the table. Many environmentalists think it will not do enough to curb the crisis. Many farming groups think that it goes too far, that changing how and what they produce will impact on their income. It's an incredibly tense subject, and one that's almost too big for e-collusion to scratch the surface of. So let's do what we do best. A system in need of change has still left room for new initiatives, trying to make headway in tackling our biodiversity crisis. I'm Liam Lysett, I'm Director of the National Biodiversity Data Centre. Biodiversity in one way can be a kind of a complex issue, so we've introduced a number of different initiatives that make it easy for people to get involved in understanding biodiversity on their farm, helping to document the biodiversity they have in their farm, and actually help monitoring so that we can track changes. So we have a range of activities going from simply just kind of getting people involved maybe send us photographs of nice features of biodiversity on their farm. If you're interested in doing something a bit more systematic, we're encouraging people to participate in different surveys. There's a surveys of Irish hedgehogs. There's monitoring of butterflies, or there's these uh, fit counts to monitor pollinators. And at the other end, then, if you want to take actions to help biodiversity, we're providing information on how to make bee habitat, how to help butterflies, for example, 
or other features that are a benefit to wildlife. Farmers felt misunderstood in how they treat the nature on their land. Yeah, I think they feel hard done by. There's a lot of negativity around what they do. Farmers obviously have a production system that they've been encouraged to be involved with for, for years. And, you know, biodiversity has never actually been introduced into that, even in terms of ag colleges. Biodiversity is never there. And even where farmers are doing good work, they don't get recognition for it. So again, that's one of the things we want to try to do is showcase positive actions, really change the narrative around farmland biodiversity. What happens when biodiversity and nature isn't on the agenda in agricultural education? Actually, two weeks ago, a local farmer, one of the better farmers, rang me and he said, will you come up, Liam, and have a chat about this? He's a man in his kind of late 50s. And he said, you know, it was only about two or three years ago I heard that cutting hedgerows every year isn't good for biodiversity. No one has ever told us that. Biodiversity, frankly, has not been part of agriculture for the last number of decades. And we need to change that. We need ways to bring it back into the production system. We heard it on the bee sanctuary, but it's no harm to revisit why hedgerows are so important on farms. There's a lot of scientific literature about the value of hedgerows. They are so important. And I think that is one of the criticisms I'd have of agricultural training in that I don't think the importance of hedgerows is recognised. They're also a cultural feature. Many of them predate 1700. So in, in one sense, they're a very important feature of the landscape and our culture. They are of enormous value for biodiversity, all types. Even the hedgerows themselves have a diversity of plants. And then there's a huge variety of insect life and mammal life associated with them. And they provide a very important food source for animals in autumn when food is scarce. But they're also a very important feature for livestock farming, particularly in providing shelter for livestock, which is a very important feature. The amount of, of productive land lost from a hedgerow is very small. I think it would be it would be very important as a minimum that farmers retain all the remaining hedgerows and not rub out any future. So what if you're a kid who lives on a farm or someone who lives in the countryside that can visit one on a regular basis? Where is the best place to start tracking the biodiversity on your farm? Well, a good first step really is to keep your eyes open as you walk around and try to discover what's on your farm. That would be a really good step. We have a system called an Irish Citizen Science Portal, where if you make observations of wildlife on your farm, you can send us the details of those observations and they go into database. Whether it be a simple thing like a ladybird or whether it be some of these magnificent butterflies we see, or even again, things like mammals like foxes, hares, hedgehogs, which occur on farmland. Documenting that they occur on your farm, seeing where they are, is very, very useful information. So at that simple level, it's a great way to open your eyes, get out and explore the biodiversity on your doorstep. There's a lot of negativity around farmland and biodiversity. And what we're trying to do really is to try to showcase some of the positive work that's going on and to show that if every farmer did a small bit of action, positive action, cumulative impact would be quite great. You know, there's a lot of good, solid biodiversity features within farmland. And we want really to treat it as a kind of celebration to show that there's good work going on. It's easy to do positive work. If you go to biodiversityireland.ie website, we have that information on the website. But I mean, a quick Google search in terms of managing farmland for biodiversity, you'll get a lot of material from many different partners who are involved in this area. So I'd encourage everyone to do that. Thanks, Liam. If you live in a farm and would like to share the ways in which you're adapting to improve the biodiversity on it, we'd love to hear from you. Email junior at rte.ie and if you're on social media, use the hashtag farmlandbiodiversity. One way to take a step towards understanding a bit more about where food comes from is to get growing yourself. And St. Patrick's Primary School in Galway City has done just that. My name is Amaya. I am 
We did not think we could have a garden in our school, but we turned a concrete patch into a container garden using pallets, tires, and recycled plastic. Over here, we have some lavender, some sage, and last week we transplanted some sunflowers so they can have some sunlight and rainwater. And over here, we have lettuce, and when they're fully grown, we donate them to Mary and the Swan Rescue. So over here, we have beetroot that we donate to the Swan Rescue. And she doesn't just take in swans, she takes in a lot of other kind of birds. Like a lot of type of birds that are very peaceful, and I like to see them eat and enjoy what they're supposed to enjoy, it's like eating. We have chives going here, and the bees love them, and it's just really tasty. We grow crops, and we also grow a lot of plants like chives, lettuce, and we also grow sunflowers. That's my favorite part. I like to see them grow and watch them expand. Over here we have peas, and we put bamboo so they can stand up straight. In our greenhouse we planted tomato slices that have now grown into full tomato plants. Our garden is a really colorful place. We painted it with lots of different colors and it's really nice to look at. My name is Ayanda and I'm nine years old from third class. This garden is vibration and the colors of the flowers and plants are colorful and nice and they smell good. The rosemary is the one that I like mostly. My name is Aiden and I am nine years old. Last year we entered the Brig Grow competition, but then COVID-19 came. We could not proceed in the school, so when lockdown um, hit, we all brought our plants to our houses and then um, we all started making bug houses and um, um, doing good for the bees. When the school opened up again, we checked to see if we won the big grow competition. It turned out we did, and we bought three big benches and a roof for outside so we can have a lot more lessons outside. What I love about the garden is because it's very peaceful and we're right beside the river Corb so we can hear it flowing. And I love all the vibrant colours and it's very pretty and it attracts loads of bees. It's a regular garden with no flowers at all and we turned it into a bright colourful garden with loads of different plants and smells. Like we have lavender and herbs and like we do paintings out here with spray paint and just paint it. And we have our lovely caretaker Joe who takes care of the school and does paintings. Between the teachers, the caretaker and all the children at the school, it's obvious that it does take work to set up your own garden to produce food. But when you plant a seed in the ground, it's not just about what grows from it, but actually what grows from the process and what you're inspired to do afterwards. When I came to St. Pat's, I looked in their garden and then I seen all these strawberries, chives, carrots, potatoes. I realised that I could grow a lot more than just grass and flowers. At home, I grow loads of different flowers and like they're really pretty and they attract loads of bees. My parents and me thought that we couldn't grow anything in Ireland because of the weather. But when we saw the school growing all these plants, it inspired us to start growing. So we have started to grow lots of plants, like sunflowers, strawberries, beetroot, 
and more. My name is Aiden and I am nine years old. This experience has inspired me to grow at home. Me and my mom thought it would be really hard. After I seen the school growing chives, strawberries, rosemary, I quickly figured out that I could grow a lot more at home. I grow some tomatoes as well. The food that you get in shops, some of them aren't healthy. And if you have freshly grown fruit, then it would be really good for you to eat it because they will have nutrients and vitamins. I think kids can grow food because it is a very nice experience for kids to examine and watch the little seeds grow. Inch by inch, grow by grow. So, Claire Louise thinks the system is broken. Liam and the Biodiversity Data Centre want farmers to highlight the good things they are doing. And yet, many are slow to change. And that's a problem, even if it's understandable. There's been a focus for a very long time on growing production. Expanding farms, clearing trees from fields and removing hedgerows, increasing the use of artificial fertilisers and pesticides to get bigger yields. And in the process of this, farms lose their nature that is actually essential to the long-term growth and production of our food. So how do we change? How do we support people in transitioning away from one model and moving into another? One that pays them to support nature. This is at the heart of what just transition should be. Dr Shane what is Just Transition? So Just Transition looks at workers' rights and livelihoods and how that's going to change with climate change. And it also brings in climate justice as well, because we need to think about just transitions, not just in Ireland, but in other areas where it's going to have an impact. And to be honest, it's going to have an impact everywhere. So Just Transition is a commitment that organisations have made to look out for people as we change and as we deal with climate change. In other words, how we adapt to those changes that are coming down the road. So organisations like the United Nations, the European Union and even like our Irish government have made those commitments. We've promised to protecting people, protecting their jobs and their communities, their ways of life and their culture while we deal with climate change and adjust those changes coming down the road. One place that has spent the last 10 years trying to do just that, moving away from the type of farming that's bad for the land towards one that incentivises farmers to help nature, it's in County Clare. My name is Brendan Dunford and I manage the Barn Programme here in the west of Ireland. It's a great little project or programme, uh, if you like, which works with over 300 farmers and about 25,000 hectares of land in this magical landscape of the Barn. And our job here, myself and, and my colleagues, is to encourage and incentivise and reward farmers to look after biodiversity in the burn and look after the water quality as well and the landscape itself. I came to the burn initially as a student. That was over 20 years ago. And at that point, I knew very little about the place. I knew it was very different. It was quite famous because of the flowers and there was lots of books written and articles written and scientific papers written about it. But it never really prepared me for what I found when I got here. So over the last 20 years, I suppose I've gotten to know the place and really fallen in love with it because it's, it's just so beautiful. Uh, not just the biodiversity, which is amazing, but the fact that people have been building monuments and, uh, you know, structures here for 6,000 years. So it's like walking through a history book. 
You can go through chapters like the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the Stone Age and see what people were doing and building at that time. And then there's the geology, which I just, it's amazing. All this limestone, which has been exposed to the elements and all these weird lunar shapes have been formed and then there's caves underground. So I love all that. And the other thing that's what not just drew me here, but held me here is the whole cultural side, the music, the dancing, the poetry, the literature. And the story of farming um, in, in the landscape. And that's a story that wasn't well known. And that's a story which I found just utterly fascinating when I got here and got to know a little bit more about it. To be farming a burn is pretty challenging, I guess, because in summertime it can be very, very dry. There's very little water. It can be quite harsh for, for animals. In wintertime then, uh, we're out on, on the edge of the Atlantic, I suppose. So it can be quite rough and wild. You can't really be a tillage farmer in a lot of the burn because there's just too much rock. You can't drive across with your shiny new tractor. You have to be, you know, out there on foot quite a lot. And, you know, farming at the best of times is, can be difficult to make a living, especially compared with working off farm. So here in the burn, to make a living, you have to be very smart, very hardworking, quite innovative and, and, and quite determined as well. Well, what was the burn like when Brendan first got there? Yeah, so I got to the burn back in 1998 and I came, I came here as a student um, from University College Dublin and I came here to do a doctorate and the subject of the study was the relationship or the impact, I suppose, of farming on the burn. So looking at especially how farmers impacted on biodiversity and there was a lot of concern at the time that, you know, farmers were destroying the burn that they're being granted to reclaim and to fertilize and to improve and the flowers are disappearing and you know we needed to do something about it but when I got down here I found you know that but a whole different story as well and what I found and discovered over the years from talking to people and doing the research was that the bigger problem was that farmers were disappearing from the burn landscape less and less farmers every year like I think less than half of what we had 40 years before I started were still farming in the burn and when you stop farming in the burn and you stop grazing it one or two plants become very dominant stronger plants become dominant because they're not being grazed back every year and eventually the burn kind of reverts back to a kind of a scrubby and ultimately a wooded landscape over over time which is wonderful in some ways but actually when that happens you lose a lot of your rare plants your arctic and your alpine and your mediterranean plants which make the burn so special the growth of of of, of a scrub uh, led by the abandonment of farming can also damage the archaeology knock down structures and make them difficult to find and it also changes the look of the burn and makes it more difficult access for farmers or cattle or even for tourists so there was problems in the burn and to summarise the problems, there were the fact that uh, farming was polarised. Either had too much farming and it was very intensive and damaging, or too little, which was the bigger problem. And what really concerned me was that the trends of undergrazing and abandonment were growing all the time because farming was less and less viable in this place. So to go about changing that, the first thing we did was we told the story of the burn, but we included farmers and their contribution to the story when we were telling it. So we published a little book called Farming in the Burn. My late wife Anne and I, we produced this little um, organisation called the Burn Bio Trust, just to tell the world, look at the burn is an amazing place, but people have lived and farmed here for 6,000 years and they're part of the story. Their farming practices have kind of shaped the landscape. In particular, this fascinating practice of winter grazing, which is really key to the biodiversity of the burn. So our first step was really to help farmers to feel part of the solution and not just part of the problem. And they were a really integral part of this place. 
The second thing we did then was we looked at farmers in a different way. We saw farmers as not a problem, but a resource for dealing with biodiversity loss. And we just spent a lot of time thinking about how can we mobilise or help these farmers to become the solution and not to become the problem. And we figured there was two things that needed to happen. That to deliver biodiversity, it needs to make financial sense to the farmer. There's no point in saying you're doing the wrong thing, but if it's costing the farmer money to do the right thing, well, that's not a solution either. So we came up with a way to reward farmers for producing more biodiversity. And we also gave them the advice and support as to how you do it, because it's not simple. It can actually be quite complicated. So we did a lot of research, and we shared that research with the farmers, and they shared it with each other. Because like, if you're a beef farmer or a dairy farmer, you've got lots of advice from different places. But if you want to farm for nature and farm for biodiversity, where do you go? So we set up a little local office to give farmers that kind of advice. Although farming and progress often means looking forward to new practices, sometimes it's important to look back to traditions left behind. In the barn, we've got this fascinating traditional farming practice called Wintridge. And it's a seasonal movement of livestock and in the past people as well to the uplands over winter. So you imagine all over the world, um, farmers put their cattle up onto the hills during summertime when the snow has melted and, you know, the grass is growing. But in the barn, we do the opposite. And the reason being, in wintertime up in the barn, there's lots of water and it's rich in calcium, so very good for animal health. All the flowers have died back, so there's lots of grazing and it's like every mouthful you might contain 10 or 12 different plants with different minerals and things like that in them. And as well, the limestone, the barn is a big giant limestone tablet and that acts almost like a storage heater, absorbing the heat in summer and releasing it in wintertime. So when the cattle are lying on the barn outside in winter, it's actually quite warm and dry underfoot. So I often say it's like a five-star hotel for cattle because they have really nice beds, they have really great menu to choose from and a good bar as well. Whereas elsewhere in Ireland, the cattle are in houses. So that practice, when I was doing my research, that practice of winter grazing, it was found to be hugely important for biodiversity because in summertime, all the flowers are out, they're blooming, the cattle are somewhere else. Then in wintertime, when all the flowers die back, the cattle hoover up all the dead vegetation And that creates the space and the light for the little flowers to pop out the following spring when the cattle are away. So without that grazing, you wouldn't have the burns biodiversity. So how has the change in practice changed things on the ground? Since I've been here, I think there's been a lot of good things happening because there's been a lot of great people doing great things. And primarily it's the farmers doing really good things because we've created this little payment system where we give every field a score out of 10, depending on its environmental health. So if a field is really well grazed and managed and the water has been kept clean and, you know, the invasive species have been kept back, that gets a high score and the farmer gets more money for that field. He's been paid for something that we call ecosystem services. So that payment has really encouraged farmers to reinvigorate the tradition of winterage. So the cattle are being put back out on the hills for longer periods and that's having a really positive impact on biodiversity and we know that because we've been tracking the data for over 10 years now we can show that every year the environmental health of the barn is improving. The other big change that you see if you come to the barn is you see a lot of the old stone walls being repaired and restored because we help farmers with that work as well we give them some funding to do it because you can't have grazers unless you've got fences to keep them in and the old stone walls are great fences. You see a lot of rainwater harvesters to gather rainwater and to pump it using solar and wind up onto the hills so the cattle can drink the calcium-rich water while they graze and they don't damage the sensitive springs while they do that. You'll also see beautiful barn gates, which are locally made gates, which are a real emblem of the project. Again, that's part of managing the cattle when you're out on the land. 
And I think you see just a reinvigoration and paths being opened for access for cattle and for farmers as well. So there's lots of things happening. And the great thing about the burn programme is that we have maybe over 70% of the burn farmers in the programme right at the moment. So you can really see the impact at a landscape scale. Claire Louise mentioned that farmers are actually penalised for supporting nature on their land. The Burn Project is different. So our programme is co-funded by the EU and the Irish government through the Ministry of Agriculture. I think the European Commission have been very supportive initially to our research and also to our programme. They're probably a little bit nervous initially, as were our own government, about this type of approach because it's quite radical it's quite different. It's quite giving the farmers a lot of trust and it's investing really in the farming community to deliver. And that's been a bit of a, a leap of faith, I think, for, for many people. But now we can show that it does work. I think increasingly the Commission and others are recognising just how chronically serious and urgent the situation is with regard to biodiversity and climate. They're also appreciating that after 20 years of environmental schemes, things are still in decline, so the existing model just can't continue. We have to do things better. And there's not that many good alternatives out there. So I think they've looked at places like the Barn and these amazing projects like the Hen Harrier, Freshwater Pearl Muscle and others as being solutions which are both acceptable to farmers but also really deliver. And if they don't deliver, they don't get paid so that the money isn't squandered because it's very hard to justify paying hundreds of millions across Europe to governments and the farmers on the ground if the results aren't being delivered. So I think we have to do better and we can do better. And I think the Commission are hearing that message and strategies like the biodiversity strategy and the farm to fork are recognising that. But the one thing I would say is that we're kind of sick of strategies (laughs) to some degree because we keep saying, ah, that strategy didn't work, we'll have to write a new one. We need action, we need solutions, we need people on the ground being mobilised. And I think that's what we're trying to do in the burn. It's just less talk and more action. And I think that's given the urgency of the situation that we need more of that. The action that the Burn Project and the farmers involved have taken has had a very real impact. It's turned around the biodiversity of a landscape that was under threat. Working with this project and working with Burn Bio, I think we're all very proud of not just the work that's being done, but the centrality or the importance of the farmers, because I, I know a lot of farmers, I'm from a farming background. I think farmers get a pretty bad rap. Now, in some cases, they do deserve it. But I think if you respect and trust the farmers, if we reward them for doing the right thing and give them support to do it, I think they have a huge role in the future of our society in addressing both biodiversity and climate crisis. So I'm really proud that the burn farmers have stepped up and they've really met the challenge and they've exceeded expectations. Not all of them, but many of them. To the extent that when somebody's giving a talk about the burn now, it's more often than not, it's a farmer. And that's how it should be. They have this relationship with the land and this inherent knowledge and pride of place that I think beats the hell out of any any scientist. So I love uh, and it makes me very proud to hear farmers standing up and talking about their role, their importance and their pride in this magnificent landscape of the burn. To find out more, head to burnprogram.com. This is part one of our two-part look at farms and biodiversity. A huge thanks to everybody involved, in particular the second and third class from St. Patrick's Primary School and their teacher, Mr. Conboy, who gathered the recording for us. Not to forget our own brain trust. I have to take a deep breath in for this one. Thanks, Lila May, Freya, Jack, Austin, Harry, Adam, Ben, Orla, Gino, Evie, Isabel, Benjamin and Christian. I feel like a spent balloon after all of that. I'll need a week to recover. Next week, we meet a farmer in Leash who has absolutely changed the direction of his farm over the course of the last six years to put a focus on farming for nature.
Decolution. Decolution was produced by Nikki Cochran for RTE Junior Radio. This is our RTE Junior.